Our scripture reading today is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. God, your spirit moves like the wind, where it wills, where you will. We pray that your will is that your spirit would move among us right now to show us Christ. Show us how generous you have been to us in Christ, that we would be satisfied in him alone. And from that well of satisfaction, pour out our souls in generosity toward one another. In his name we ask in confidence for these things. Amen. When Molly and I, my wife Molly, if you haven't met her, when we became Christians quite a while ago, we began to search around town for a new church family. Growing up Lutheran and Catholic, we had known a lot, but clearly we had missed something. And we were willing to try out any new church, any experience to figure out where our church home would be to grow in this new faith that we had found. I don't remember all the places I visited, but there was one place in particular that really still sticks out to my mind to the, in this day now because of what happened during the offering. I don't really remember everything that was taught the whole time, but I know I was a little bit uncomfortable throughout, and I told myself, you know, your discomfort with this style of worship is not a good indicator of where to find truth. So I stuck it out. I waited. And then came the offering, at which time, I am not kidding you, a man walked forward wearing a gold suit from shoulder down to his ankles, covered in dazzling gold. And he began to explain how their church is not all about money. For ten straight minutes, we're not all about money, but now is the offering and we're not all about money. While his shimmering gold suit shines in my eyes, that suit was telling me something completely different. We knew in that moment we would never set foot in that church again. And as that experience has been cemented into my heart, I decided... I will never want to be known as someone more interested in your money. I never want to give the impression that our church is all about money. So in nearly three years of preaching from this pulpit, we've never once preached about giving. Because we didn't want to be that guy. We didn't want to sound like we're more interested in your wallet than your soul. And then... Recently, we had a gentle rebuke from some godly men in our church that said, I know what you're trying to avoid, but you're also inadvertently failing to train your people how to live a full Christian life, how to enjoy God's riches and share them abundantly with others. 
And so today we're just taking a one-week detour from the minor prophets in light of the upcoming budget vote and the discussions we're having, that are happening now in order to talk about giving. So this message from 1 Timothy is not intended to be a rebuke to say, you guys are terrible and you need to do a lot better. But instead, I hope to inspire you to enjoy being a conduit of God's generosity in all of your life. So Paul tells the Philippians to give to his mission, not for his own good, but for the fruit that increases to your credit. He wants the church, every church he reaches out to, to take hold of the rich life by setting your hopes on our generous God. That's our message today. Take hold of the rich life by setting your hopes on our generous God. Now, before you get too uncomfortable, Mike Bold, it's important for us to understand what it means to be rich. We despise the prosperity gospel. A message that leads souls to hell. Telling people that you're going to get rich if you believe in Jesus. If you just plant a seed, then God is going to pour out His riches in this world upon you. You are not promised health, security, wealth, comfort, ease in this life as I hope you've seen from our own examples and our preaching. Much of the Christian life is endured through trials and suffering. So we need new eyes to know what it means to be truly rich. Paul here in our text is offering us a corrective view of wealth, really a corrective view of the whole world. In verse 17, he warns us of the uncertainty of worldly riches. And then he replaces it in verses 18 and 19 with a new perspective on riches in godly generosity. Experiencing God's riches is not about what you have, but what you give. In God's economy, to be rich is not having much, but to be good at giving much of what you have. In God's economy, being rich is not having much, but being good at giving much of what you have. And when you understand this counterintuitive principle of God's kingdom, then you can take hold of the rich life by setting your hopes on our generous God. So let's begin in our text in verse 17 to beware the uncertainty of worldly riches. Paul writes to Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, since we haven't been working through the book of 1 Timothy, this is one of the very last things he says to Timothy. Maybe it would be helpful to give a little context. Tell you what the book of 1 Timothy has been all about. The entire book is a charge, a letter written to Pastor Timothy, one of the pastor's elders at the Ephesian church. And he's told to confront false teachers amongst that church and replace it with humble, Christ-exalting leadership that's grounded in preaching God's Word. So these false teachers in this church think they're so smart. They think they've got something really important to say and it needs to be said. They're the dynamic ones They have a good following, and so we should be up front. But they're leading people to hell. 
This is dangerous stuff happening here. And Paul is teaching Timothy how to identify these guys and confront them while offering a new model, a different picture of what godly leadership looks like and to refocus the priorities of the church on God's priorities. So he says in chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is God's plan for representing Him in this world. So the church must be organized in the appropriate way and and behave in ways that are consistent both with God's character and His plan to save the world. So he summarizes this entire message with this call to faithfulness with money. I wrestled with this for a long time this week. What in the world does faithfulness with money have to do with determining who's a true and false believer, teacher? Well, remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Paul's saying the same thing. It might be difficult to discern somebody's heart, who's a true and false teacher, by knowing their hearts. But how a person handles their own possessions reveals the pride in their hearts. It will make the difference clear. So these false teachers at the beginning of 1 Timothy says are desire to be known as teachers of the law. But by the end of the letter in chapter 6, verse 9, it's clear that they really just desire to be rich. They want this position so they can get all the influence. And Paul warns, the love of money is the root of all evil. The ESV adjusts the translation a little bit to help us understand it's not money itself that's the problem, but what money represents. These teachers are after notoriety, fame, influence, power, control. They want to receive everything that comes along with that. Now, you guys might think that you've escaped those lusts, but they manifest themselves also in your desire for comfort, security, significance, independence. It's all about pride, self-exaltation. I want it for me. Pride is the root of all evil. And it's difficult to see pride in the heart. And so he's given us this way to know how to reveal pride in someone's heart, where your treasure is. Your heart is also. So Paul begins his charge addressing the rich in this present age. Who are these people, the rich? There's lots of measurements for what richness and wealth and poverty is. So in the scale of global riches, the grand scale of a global economy and in history, every single person in this room is ridiculously rich. But, wealth is often more understood in context of your own culture. So we look around and say, well, that guy over there, or that person, that family, they've got way more than me. they got more toys, a bigger house, a better job. So all those Bible warnings about riches, they apply to them, not us. But Paul just wants to cut that off. Stop talking like that. And we see how he begins this call to the rich in this present age. He says, as for them. Meaning, he's comparing it not to one another, but to someone he was just talking about. Go up just a couple of verses to verse 15. Jesus 
is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's a lot of fancy royal legal royal language to say Jesus owns everything and He has dominion. He rules over everything. All your money is His. All your property is His. Some people might have a little bit more in this life than others, but compared to Him, we are all utter beggars with our hands out just asking Him for more. And everything He gives you is only to be used for His purposes. Setting our eyes on Christ is the key for a proper understanding of riches. Key for discerning if you are truly a believer or not. Are you surrendered to Christ? Or are you trying to establish your own kingdom of wealth and power? To help us do the self-examination, Paul gives us a, a negative-positive comparison. A negative, not this, positive, but this. Don't be like this guy. Be like this guy. Verse 17 is the negative. First he says, do not be haughty. Meaning proud, arrogant, don't boast, don't set your value in who you are, in your riches, your identity, in how much you have. Because when you have a bigger house, a cooler car, better toys, a nicer job, you start to think that maybe you have these things because you're so great. You're more diligent in your work. You're smarter. You're more responsible with your money. But as Paul writes to the Corinthians, who makes you any different from anyone else? Why do you boast as if you did not receive everything? What do you have that you did not receive? If your eyes are on Christ, you know that even though there's differences among us, compared to Him, we are all in the same boat. So Paul then secondly says not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That is, don't rest your future on what you have today because it could be gone in an instant. Natural disaster comes along, some personal crisis where your medical bills skyrocket and you are toast. Who is your provider? In your pride, you tend to think it's yourself. I work hard to care for my family. But with eyes on Christ, we know that He alone is our provider. Your future depends on His kindness toward you. This is the crux of the entire letter. Set your hope on God who richly provides everything. Everything you have is a gift from Him. And this is His entire message that inspires us to faithful giving. It, ter- setting your hopes on God is what turns a heart from hoarding to myself for self-exaltation into giving, emptying self for the good of others. It all hinges on God and His unchanging character who alone rules everything, who abundantly provides us with everything. For what? Interestingly, He says to enjoy. God doesn't want us to be these miserly penny pinchers who are so stingy with our money. We used to joke to my dad that he was so so stingy with money that every time he took a dollar bill out of his pocket, Washington squinted. Just a dollar. 
From the beginning, God has been generous to us. So generous. Expecting that His people will enjoy it. And they will in turn invite others to share in the joy. In order to reflect His generous character. So before we move on to verse 18, I just want to back up to the beginning of the Bible again as we do quite regularly and show how kind and generous our God has been since the beginning. He has been so kind to provide more than enough for His people, not just to survive, but to thrive in joyful plenty. Look at what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them in His image, Genesis 1.26. And He says, I want you to reflect Me. And in our case today, I want you to reflect my generosity. And what does he model for them in chapter 2? He puts them in a beautiful, bountiful garden with four rivers that are flowing with fresh water, giving life to everything. There's food, vegetation of all kinds, bearing myriads of fruits and vegetables, good food to satisfy every hunger. There's even an abundance of gold and precious jewels to beautify the entire place. It was for their joy. So they would be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with people who enjoy God's blessings. But instead, they desired the one thing they couldn't have. All of this riches! And it was one thing they wanted. That one tree. And eating of that tree was a way of declaring independence from God, determining I will find significance on my own in what I obtain. They became haughty, setting their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, not on God. And so God, with every right as ruler over heavens and the earth, He took away their blessed riches. And this is the story of the whole Old Testament. Back and forth, God provides riches... People receive them, become haughty, boastful, and rebellious, so God takes them away. But God, in His character, is a generous giver. He can't help but give. He must give. And so, story after story, He keeps doing it. Despite their rebellion, God gave Adam and Eve new clothes to cover them. Later, God calls Abram out of Ur, wandering hermit, and says, I'm going to make you, insignificant man, a great nation. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to multiply your kids greater than the number of the stars in the sky. I'm going to make you a great nation so that in you, you will bless all nations. When Abraham's family was in desperate need of food, God raised up one of his children, grandchildren, who became the second in command in the most powerful kingdom on earth in Egypt. Joseph, he became the one who controlled the entire food supply so that he could be generous towards God's people. And in Deuteronomy 6, God tells Israel, the land I'm taking you to, it's full of cities, beautiful cities you didn't build. And homes full of things you didn't fill them with. Cisterns you didn't dig full of fresh water. And vineyards ready for you to enjoy. He gave them laws to keep them from falling into generational poverty. He gave Solomon abundant wisdom that led him to wealth and power throughout the world so that he could share everything and show how generous God is. But they couldn't keep it. History shows that humanity 
is not able to receive God's blessings without it puffing us up and eventually destroying us. How can anyone enjoy God's generosity without it leading us to destruction? Again, it would be God's own generosity that provides the solution. He promised in Jeremiah 29.11 that He had great plans for His people to prosper. And then in two chapters later, Jeremiah 31, He reveals what those plans are, explaining, contrary to popular understanding of Jeremiah 29.11, that God is not primarily interested with providing you an easy life, but God will provide you with Himself. And this promise is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Do you want to know how generous our God is? John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He gave His own Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, so you can have eternal, abundant, prosperous life in Him. Paul says that this King of Kings emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant. He humbled Himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who was rich, owned everything, became a poor beggar. He took the punishments that we deserve for our our pride, our greed, our selfishness upon Himself on the cross. And when He rose from the dead, He offers us both His riches and His spirit of generosity. They go hand in hand. 2 Corinthians 8-9, Though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Because of Christ, our generous God now dwells in us. And in Him, we are able to be rich toward others. So what does it mean to be rich then? It doesn't mean to have a lot in this life, but to give a lot by God's Spirit. Verse 18 in our text tells us that we have riches in godly generosity. Let's see it in action. Back in verse 18. They, those of us who are rich, meaning all of us, are to do good. To be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says the purpose of God giving you anything you have is so that you may share it and be a blessing to others just as He has done throughout history. To be rich isn't to have a bunch of money, but to be rich in good works. To have a heart that just wants to give, is eager for the opportunity, always looking for people to share it with. Even how Paul uses the word rich in this text shows us this transition in thinking. Four times the Greek word for rich is used in verses 17 and 18. But each time just a little bit different, so it forces us to shift our thinking. The first time he uses it in verse 17, it's an adjective. The rich. The rich person. And then the second one is a noun. Rich is. Both speaking about a measure of what someone has. It's a static concept. There it is. Riches. But then there's this big transition. When you set your eyes, your hope on God, 
The third instance of rich speaks about God Himself. It's an adverb. He's richly providing. Speaking of how God gives, richly, just pouring out gifts. Oprah style, you get riches and you get riches. And in response, the fourth use is a verb. How we are supposed to give. We are to be rich in good works. By setting our hopes on God, it changes our mindset from what we have to what we do with what we have. Being rich doesn't mean you have a lot. It means you give a lot of what you have. This is what we were designed to be from the beginning as image bearers. A conduit of God's riches. It just comes to me and goes on to the next person. Do you have the spirit of God's generosity in you? One way you can test yourself is to assess your response every time you receive something. You get a paycheck or receive a gift. Do you think, thank you God for this marvelous opportunity to share with somebody. I know just the person that could use this gift. One of you in this room recently picked up extra hours at work so you could help a brother pay off his debt. That is a spirit of God's generosity. Or kids, what happened last Thursday as you went door to door filling up your bags full of candy and as you went to the next door and the next door and that bag kept getting to the top and you're just, oh yeah, this is such a good night. Were you thinking, I can't wait to go to church and share with my friends who didn't get to go? I wonder if any of our neighbors weren't able to go trick-or-treating. I could share with them. This is the reason why God gives you anything. Not, but if you start asking the question, well, what about my needs? i got to take care of myself. Haven't I given enough? Then you reveal that you've taken your eyes off of Christ. And you become like the false teachers Timothy is supposed to confront. You already have everything you need in Christ. Paul answers this question in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also graciously give us all things? Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 6. Do not be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of you. Your job isn't to ask, how am I going to receive things? As a Spirit-filled image of God, your job is only to concern yourself with giving. Here it is. God's generosity towards us. We are just a cup in Christ, permanently tipped sideways. And God whoops, pours Himself into us constantly. All we worry about is giving all the time. I'll need a little help cleaning that up later. Didn't quite work as planned. This is the life you were made for. Giving. Look at verse 19. By concerning yourself only with giving, you lay for yourself a foundation 
for your future. You take hold today of that which is truly life. Jesus said the same thing. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. But the future he's speaking of isn't just some long, far off kingdom up there in the clouds. When you give today, you set an example for everyone else so that they will give to you in your time of need, perhaps tomorrow. This is what is truly life. Receiving God's gifts and immediately finding a way to share them. Not, we don't give cold-heartedly. Oh, I hate doing this. And we also don't, over on this ditch, keep for ourselves and enjoy by ourselves. We both are called to enjoy God's gifts and share them with as many people as possible. This is our witness to the world that we are an uncommonly generous people, ready to share, showing the world, as John Piper said, that money is not our treasure. Christ is. That's how Paul says to the Philippians, I count everything, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This salvation, brothers and sisters, this rich life, this heart, is what we want for Redemption City Church. We want for you to enjoy God's riches. The remaining question is really just, how do we do it? That's a great principle, but am I just supposed to sell everything and give it all away to the first person I see on the street? Well, there are some guidelines that we can offer. A quick answer, sort of the what, who, how, and when of giving. First, what should we give? Meaning, how much? Some of you might be familiar with the Old Testament concept of tithing. If you lived in ancient Israel, you were required to give various tithes, meaning 10% of everything you brought in from the field or from the market. And this was basically a way of paying taxes to support the temple system and the government. But that's not our example. That's, it might be a good starting point for you. But the New Testament expectation is far more radical. We've seen that God gives us everything to enjoy with others. So you should give in a way that shows that money is not your God, but Jesus is. You should give as much as possible to show that I am utterly dependent upon God to provide for tomorrow. But today I will give. You should give as much as you can to show that this God is alive in you. Give whatever you have. Give money. Open your home. Give your home. Open your table to invite others to eat with you as we do every Sunday. Remember that generosity isn't determined by how much you have, but how much you give of what you have. And if you have a heart, just a little side note, to give more, but you feel like your current financial situation is a little messy and preventing you from give, we're starting to talk with the finance team about how we can possibly start a counseling, a financial counseling ministry to help you assess your income and your expenses and set up habits for generosity. So if you're interested in either helping with that kind of ministry or if you need that kind of ministry, come talk with us because we want to help you take hold of that which is truly life. And the next question is, to whom do we give? There are billions of people on this planet. And just to ease your anxiety a little bit, you're not responsible for all of them. But you got to start somewhere. 
And the starting point of your generosity should be your church family. Look at verse 17. He says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This doesn't seem like much, but the whole time the pronouns he's been using is referring to they, those rich people. It's like God is saying God provided those rich people so we can enjoy his blessings. But even more in this context tells us where to give, that we should give to the church. It's further emphasized in verse 18 in the word for share. The word translated share is koinonia. The word that means fellowship, often speaking of the fellowship of the saints, the fellowship of God's people. You can back up to the last chapter where Paul explains in chapter 5 that the primary responsibility of the church is to take care of each other, the vulnerable, the poor, the weak. As Jake taught us in Sunday school, the purpose of your work is to build God's temple. And what do we know is the temple? It's the family of God, the church. But we don't only give to the church. We want this generosity to be known all over the world, all around. And so Paul says in Galatians 6, right at the end, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So you think of your giving target with concentric circles. Right in the middle, the bullseye is the church. Put all your focus there. And if you have opportunity, give to as many other places as possible starting with those closest to you. And then when you are ready to give, you might ask, well, how am I supposed to give to the church? Should I give to that ministry or that ministry or maybe this person or that person? The clearest examples we have are in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, and chapter 4, verse 32. The people took what they had and laid it at the feet of the apostles. They trusted the leaders to make good, godly decisions about the best gospel places to use it. Just as to ease more concerns, we're not going to stand up front and ask you to pile money at our feet. I think that would be worse than wearing a gold suit. But the idea is, the point is that you are to trust God to work through His appointed leaders, elders and deacons, to make best use of His money. We do this here at Redemption by passing the basket around or by setting up an electronic online giving system that allows you to lay it at your at their feet. To just pass it on and say, I trust you, God. When you hand off the money, you're signing a declaration of independence from the power of money over you. I will not be controlled by this anymore. I trust you, God. And finally, when do we give? It should be clear by now that we are to always be givers. God is a generous giver. He never ceases to be a giver. He's alive in us, so we should be givers all the time. But we need to train that. We need training wheels somehow. So we establish routines in our life to get a habit of giving. And the best place to practice, again, is the bullseye of your target, the church. Some people like to give weekly as the the basket goes by so they can participate in worship. God, this is yours. God, this is yours. Every single week. Others will set up monthly withdrawals on, online in order to avoid what one of our members called tithing amnesia. Did I give this week? Did I give this month? Uh, I'll just start next month and then we'll get it right. 
Do it as often as you can to keep yourself in the habit of giving, to train your heart to be a giver, setting your hopes on our generous God who richly provides everything to enjoy. This is our calling until Christ returns. You can't take hold of that which is truly life if you're holding tightly to your own riches. It only leads to your destruction. Put God's generosity to the test. Malachi 3 says, See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. If you let go of your desire for control and comfort and independence and trust God to provide while you just pour out His generosity, then you take hold of that which is truly life. And one day, I promise you, it will become a city made of gold shining like pure glass, adorned with every kind of jewel and pearl, in a garden full of new fruit every single month, leaves that are healing for the nations, a city with homes prepared for you by your generous King. Let go of the uncertainty of riches and take hold of that which is truly life. Set your hopes on our generous God. Let's pray. God, could you make us this kind of people? Not that we are trying to get anything for ourselves, but we want Jesus to be known in multiple mighty ways in this city, throughout our states, all over the world. Help us, this little church, have a disproportionate impact. Like the Macedonians, who in their poverty supplied Paul's needs and the Corinthians' needs. God, Make us a generous people because you deserve the glory for your generosity to us by giving us your son. It's in his name that we ask. Amen.